The scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Draw near to me, please. And they drew near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to set me for, to set for a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He sent me as a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has sent me as lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household, and all that you have, do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It was good to Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the good of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours." The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, The spirit of their father Jacob revived. 
And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for your word that comes to us this day. May you direct us in the truth by your Holy Spirit. May you grant us strength, wisdom, insight, and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This past Thursday was Epiphany, which we are celebrating today. And it's a word derived from a Greek term, which means to show forth, come into view, or come into light, come suddenly into view, a, a manifestation or revelation. Historically, Epiphany is the oldest of the Christmas festivals, even considered to be the climax of the season in the Eastern Church, as it commemorates the coming of the Magi, the baptism of Jesus, and his first miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. So these three events point to Christ's divinity and the mission he came to accomplish, the kind of kingdom that came to earth at the Incarnation. And specifically with the coming of the Magi, what is manifest, what comes suddenly into view, is that the Messiah born in Bethlehem is not only the Savior of Israel, but the Savior of the world, the light to the Gentiles. It's precisely this theme that we heard proclaimed in the prophecy from Isaiah 60. It's part of the implication of what we chanted in Psalm 72. It's central to Paul's teaching that we heard from Ephesians 3, and is certainly at the heart of Matthew's recounting of the visit of the Magi. Here are these foreigners who come a long way in order to bring gifts to Jesus and bow down before him in worship. You know, you don't see Herod or the chief priests or the teachers of the law coming. No, it's a bunch of outsiders, we might say, who are excited about the birth of the king of the Jews. In some senses, they're the apostles. They're the evangelists to Herod and Jerusalem. Over the years, there have been a number of popular television shows involving a makeover of some kind, whether someone's wardrobe, their physical appearance, or even someone's home. And inevitably, the show builds up until the last few moments when you get to see the person or the house in their transformed state. Everything builds up to the big reveal. Well, that's basically what we have in Genesis 45. At last, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And what leads to this revelation on his part? Well, Judah's marvelous speech, his confession and testimony in chapter 44, verses 18 to 34, which we considered a couple of weeks ago. Admittedly, having to break up the story in this way diminishes the dramatic effect. But recall that chapters 43 to 45 can be read and understood as a single story. And Judah's speech, his acting in kingly fashion, his willingness to lay down his life on behalf of Benjamin, is the, the climax of the Joseph-Judah story that began in chapter 37, and arguably could be the climax of Genesis as a whole. So we were left in suspense, and now chapter 45 picks up in the middle of this dramatic moment, in the middle of the scene, recounting Joseph's reaction to Judah's words. So what, what's set before our faith to consider this morning? How is, how is Jesus displayed to us in this text? And in what ways is the life of the kingdom of heaven upon the earth further impressed upon us? Well, in the first place, in verses 1 to 15, note the revelation of the Messiah. Joseph can't hold back a moment longer, and so he commands everyone, 
but his brothers to depart from him and then makes himself known to them. For the third time, Joseph weeps, but this time not apart from his brothers, but in front of them. And Joseph's wailing is so loud that the Egyptians, presumably his servants, heard it as well as the house of Pharaoh. This may indicate that Joseph's house was right next to Pharaoh's. And then Joseph declares in verse 3, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Joseph states his name. The brothers have never mentioned Joseph by name in their conversations with Joseph, so this provides credibility to Joseph's claim. Also, by asking the question, is my father still alive, is another way of identifying with his brothers. Jacob is his father too. Their father, for whom they are concerned and with whom they grieve, is also his father. At first, the brothers are speechless, dismayed at his presence. But then notice what Joseph says in verse 4. Draw near to me. This is the same word used in, in relation to drawing near to God in worship. Even as it was used of the brothers drawing near to the man of Joseph's house in chapter 43 and verse 19. And of Judah drawing near to Joseph in 44, 18. Don't miss what's being pictured here. Joseph sent out his Egyptian servants. He is speaking directly to the brothers in their own language. There's no longer an interpreter between them. They're entering into Joseph's unmediated presence. And once again, he identifies himself. I am Joseph and tells them something else they didn't reveal to him in their conversations in the previous chapters. Whom you sold into Egypt. That's information that only Joseph could possibly know. And in verses 5 through 8, Joseph's words are a rich confession of faith and are the evidence of his forgiveness of his brothers. Remember, they passed, remember they passed the test in chapter 24. They didn't treat Benjamin the way they treated Joseph 22 years before. As Jesus declared in Matthew 25, 40, and the king will come uh, and the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. What Judah has done for Benjamin, he has done for Joseph. It counts toward him. That's how Joseph now sees his brothers. This principle is applied here. And as a result, he's inviting them into his presence, telling them to set aside their fear and anger. Uh, in a symbolic sense, Joseph is, is resurrected right before their very eyes. And after, Joseph, uh, after Jesus' resurrection, what did he say? What did the angels say? Don't be afraid. Joseph is saying the same thing here. But be sure to notice the theology that just that comes pouring out of the text in these verses. Joseph recognizes what his brothers did in selling him into slavery. But Joseph sees the bigger picture and plan of God in verse 5. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Then again in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph understands God's purposes and what has taken place, and that he's being used to bring about life in the midst of death. The famine was a form of death to the land, and literally to those who would starve to death as a result. But Joseph is a source of life, not only for Egypt, but more importantly for the covenant people of God, the people of promise, the people through whom the salvation of the world will ultimately come. Yet in verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times Joseph makes this claim that God sent him to Egypt. Three times he also states that God has placed or set him in a certain position. In verse 7, to set, translated preserve, to set for you a remnant, 
Verse 8, he has set, it made, me a father to Pharaoh. And verse 9, he has set, made me Lord of all Egypt. And notice the interesting progression revealed in verse 8. Joseph is a father to Pharaoh, Lord of all of Pharaoh's house, and rules over all the land of Egypt. Joseph has an ever-widening circle of influence, moving out from an individual, Pharaoh, to his house, to the entire nation. Perhaps that foreshadows Jesus as the Lord of individual persons, families, and nations. A few weeks ago, we made mention of what it meant uh, that Joseph was a father to Pharaoh. He played the part of a prophet to Pharaoh, a wise counselor to a king. Also, as father in the faith to Pharaoh, he directed him in the truth of God's ways and the promises made to Abraham, the father of many nations. Therefore, Abraham is a father to Pharaoh and Egypt through Joseph, who is of the promised seed line. And note again in the sweep of this section, what Joseph is primarily, that, that Joseph is primarily described as providing life. Three times mention is made of Joseph preserving life in some form or fashion. That theme continues in verses 9 to 11, but notice that Joseph provides life from an exalted position. He's a king, a ruler, and from this position, he brings life to the world. And surely we can see that Joseph suffered for the sake of others. He suffered in his slavery and imprisonment, as we've noted numerous times before. But now he's been exalted. He's the seed of the woman who had to be crushed in order to bring about life for the world. And of course, that directs our minds and faith forward to Jesus. But I want you to see an important pattern here as it relates to Jesus. Jesus went through every trial and temptation before we do. And he went through life to provide us with life. And not only that, he's gone ahead to prepare a place for us even as he told the disciples in John 14. And that going ahead was by the path of the cross, a way of suffering and death. This is a biblical pattern that we see throughout Scripture, not just Jesus and Joseph, but also Moses along with a host of others. And it should be a great encouragement to us that Jesus has gone ahead of us, that he suffered humiliation followed by exaltation in order to give us life. We too can know and believe that God is not wasting any of our trials and suffering. They're not purposeless, nor are they unending. They will in the end give way to exaltation. So what does Joseph do? Well, he, he basically sends his brothers back to the land of Canaan with a message of good news, with a gospel announcement that he is alive and will provide them with a new land in which to dwell so that they may not perish. As John Calvin notes, God willed that Joseph should be as one dead for a short time in order that he might suddenly bring him forth from the grave as a preserver of life. That's the message the brothers are to deliver to their father. Joseph will provide for them, their children and their grandchildren, all their flocks and herds, meeting the concern earlier expressed by Jacob himself. In verse 12, Joseph calls his brothers to see, to make a sound judgment that he is who he says he is. Note that Benjamin, his brother, is able to see and that he's speaking to them directly. They are to see and to hear. They are to use their eyes and their ears. Then verse 13, you must tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen. 
This mention of glory should remind us of, of Jacob in Genesis 31.1 when Laban's sons are, were complaining about how Jacob had gained all his glory. Jacob had suffered under Laban, but the Lord blessed his suffering servant and made him heavy, gave him glory. Likewise with Joseph. He too has suffered, but has been given glory. Well, in verses 14 to 15, the brothers are reunited and reconciliation is evident. Notice that the men are called the brothers throughout this chapter. They're identified in familial terms. Joseph embraces Benjamin and weeps with him and then does the same with his brothers and they talked with him. And surely we'd like to know what was said, what words were exchanged. Maybe Joseph caught them up on what had happened to him over the past 20 plus years, but we're not given that information. And perhaps you remember all the way back in 37.4 that the brothers could not speak peacefully to Joseph. Now they can. Reconciliation has been achieved. Well, that brings us to the second section that we'll consider today in verses 16 to 24, which we'll call the generosity of grace. Verse 16, the report of the arrival of Joseph's brothers was heard in Pharaoh's house, and it was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and his servants. The fact that this news was so well received by Pharaoh and his house and his servants reflects their real love and admiration for Joseph and for the God Joseph serves. Recall the case that we made back in chapter 41 for the conversion of Pharaoh in Egypt. We're seeing the fruit of that in their response here and still more in the provision that Pharaoh goes on to make. Notice his generosity in verses 17 to 20. But also notice that he commands Joseph and his provisions go beyond the provisions Joseph had promised to make. And the structure of these verses is pretty simple and forms some, some neat parallels. In verse 17, in the first part of verse 18, Pharaoh basically says, go, uh, go get your father and return. And then in the last part of verse 18, he promises the best of the land, literally the good of the land and the fat of the land. Then in verse 19, he says again, go and get your father and return. Then in verse 20, the best, the, the good of the land will be yours. Three times in verses 16 to 20, the word good is used. The report was good to Pharaoh and his servants, and the good of the land is mentioned twice. I suspect these are deliberate echoes to Genesis 1, and the circumstances in which God is placing his servants is a good one. Again, this is an exceedingly generous offer that Pharaoh is making, especially in the midst of a famine. But this picks up on a theme of the Abrahamic covenant. Those who bless you, I will bless. And surely you notice that Pharaoh basically says, don't worry about your stuff. There's plenty here that you can just have. Now, that's some serious wealth. You know, it's hard to imagine moving and not taking most, if not all of your possessions with you. But Pharaoh is making that offer to Jacob if he needs to do so. And on a practical note, if the Egyptians were jealous of the treatment the brothers would have gotten on account of Joseph's command, that will be quickly set aside now that the commands are coming from Pharaoh himself. Now, no one's going to argue with him. He's the king and can do whatever he pleases. And then in verses 21 to 24, we see Joseph and the brothers responding to the king's gracious and generous command. Even Joseph is under Pharaoh's authority. Notice the designation in verse 21, the sons of Israel. They are referred to by their national name, the name of their clan, the name of promise. So they do as Pharaoh tells them, and Joseph gives them wagons as Pharaoh commanded, as well as provisions for the journey for the way. Uh, the wagons were not uh, like four-wheeled wagons that we might think of as the pioneers uh, were in who headed west, but a two-wheeled kind, even as is sometimes depicted 
in Egyptian art. And then notice what Joseph provides for his brothers in verse 22. A change of clothes, new garments. Remember, they torn uh, their garments when Joseph's silver cup was discovered in Benjamin's sack. This mirrored the rending of Joseph's garment by the brothers, attacking his authority as Jacob's right-hand man. Also, Jacob tore his robes when he believed Joseph to have been torn to pieces by a fierce animal. The tearing of robes pictured mourning and entering into death. But now Joseph gives his brothers new garments, new clothing that reflects not only new life, but also their renewed calling as the sons of Israel, a priestly and kingly people set apart to serve the world. The torn garments of mourning are set aside for new robes. The prodigal sons are being given the best robes. And Benjamin is exalted. He's shown special treatment. 300 pieces of silver, 15 times the amount for which Joseph was sold into slavery. Benjamin also receives five times the amount of clothing, mirroring the fivefold portions he received at the feast. His position of authority is being acknowledged and promoted by Joseph. Then in verse 23, we read about the abundant provisions Joseph sends to his father. Ten donkeys loaded down with the good things of Egypt. And ten female donkeys loaded down with grain and bread. The very things the brothers came to get in the first place. Again, Joseph is pictured as the bread of life, the source of life. Then listen again to verse 24. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, said to them, Do not quarrel on the way on the journey. Now why does Joseph say this? Well, one possibility is that the brothers might still be angry at themselves and might argue or quarrel over what to say to their father upon their return. I mean, they'll have to come clean with the whole story and let Jacob know they'd sold Joseph into slavery and that he wasn't killed by a wild beast. Another possibility is that the brothers might quarrel about or begin to doubt what Joseph has said. They'll begin to wonder if Joseph can really be trusted or if he's going to trick them again or possibly get revenge later. We know they still thought this way to a certain degree, even as we'll find out in chapter 50 after Jacob's death. So basically, Joseph's saying, don't start worrying about things on the way home. Trust me. After 20 plus years of dealing with a guilty conscience, this is something that wouldn't necessarily come easily to them. And notice something else that's subtly taking place here in the text. The brothers are submitting to Joseph's authority. He's acting as their head. He's giving them orders and they're following him. Originally, they wouldn't submit to his rule and position, but now they do. Well, that brings us to the last section of the text in verses 25 to 28, the resurrection of Israel. The brothers go up. They ascend to the land of Canaan and to their father Jacob. They deliver the message. They deliver the good news. Joseph is still alive. And not only is he alive, but he rules over all the land of Egypt. Joseph is alive and he's a king. And what happens to Jacob when he hears this news? His heart stops, at least for a short period of time. That's the literal meaning of the text there. Jacob is an old man, upward of 130 years of age. His health is understandably frail. Nor does Jacob believe them. It's too impossible to be true. Then notice verse 27. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Notice the combination there. 
hearing and seeing. When Jacob heard Joseph's words, when he saw the wagons, wagons that would carry him to Egypt. Certainly he saw the donkeys full of provisions and perhaps the wagons were loaded with provisions. But what revives Jacob? Word and sacrament. The words of Joseph, the Messiah, the Redeemer, and also the gifts that can be touched and tasted. As one theologian notes, the word and sign from Joseph bring life to Jacob's dead heart. That's what backs up the story that the brothers are telling is true. And don't pass over the first two words of verse 28 too quickly. And Israel. Jacob is resurrected as Israel. He's revived according to the new name he received from the Lord. He's God's wrestler, God's man of faith. And it's this man who's ready to go to Egypt to see his son Joseph, his son who's been resurrected. In verse 26, his sons told him that Joseph was alive. And now in verse 28, Jacob declares this truth himself. Jacob responds in faith and obedience to the good news that's been declared to him. So what are, what are some principles for us to consider, further principles for us to consider in light of this marvelous text? Well, let's pick up the last point we just observed and note that God's word, his revelation demands a response from us. These words, the sermon, that you hear each Lord's Day and the things that we hear that are faithful to God's Word throughout the week are not just neat little things to learn. Whenever God reveals something, He is expecting a proper response from us. As one pastor puts it, God's Word always demands that we submit. This submission, like the submission of Israel and His sons, is for our good, for our life. But the demand is still there. Don't take lightly what you hear. Ponder it and respond to it with obedience. Secondly, Jesus gives us word and sacrament. He doesn't just give us word only, but also signs to confirm His word. And of course, those signs are baptism and the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. And as you take and touch and and you taste the bread and the wine each week, They serve to direct your faith that Jesus' promises can be trusted, that His Word can be believed. The bread and wine serve as His signs of abundance to you, just as wagons and donkeys signified as much to Jacob. And especially in times of doubt or disbelief or sorrow, in times when a faith is struggling to believe, that's precisely when you need to eat the bread and drink the wine for more courage to believe, to be reminded again that as surely as you handle these things, as you partake of these visible words, that the word of Jesus you hear is true. And also don't forget, you're, you're properly dressed for this feast. You've been given new garments. You are clothed in Christ and are even seated with Him in the heavenly places, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. You are kings with Him there. In the third place, consider that we need to be told again and again that we're forgiven. Joseph told his brothers multiple times. Why? (laughs) Because they were having a hard time believing it. 
God forgives us. And sometimes we're too quick to forget that. That's also why it's important for us to hear each week in worship that our sins are forgiven. And that God's promises are true in this, uh, in regarding, in regards to this as well. Yes, the Lord chastens us, but we shouldn't fall into thinking that when bad things happen, that the Lord really hasn't forgiven us or that He's punishing us. No. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is the God who didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for you, going to turn Himself against you? No. Is the God who has justified you, declared you righteous and not guilty, now going to bring a charge against you? No. Is Jesus the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, and who is now at the right hand of God, interceding for you, going to condemn you? No. You are forgiven. Hear the minister's voice declare to you each week. Hear God's word declare it again and again. And then take into your hands each week and eat and drink the signs of forgiveness. Fourth and finally, consider. Joseph's story teaches us to take heart. Our God is a sovereign God. All things are under his control. He can even use evil human deeds to advance his kingdom. Joseph's testimony of faith to this end is clear, and he'll make it again at the end of the book. But nowhere is the truth more vividly portrayed than in Jesus' death upon the cross. You know, as, as Peter declares in his Pentecost Day sermon, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Consider, Jesus too was betrayed by his brothers and given over to a Gentile nation to endure suffering, to undergo death, but then to be raised again as the preserver of life. And if this greatest act of evil ever committed in the history of the world is so transformed, then we can be all the more sure that God is working all things together for good, for the good of of His people, the church, and the world. And so it is to this Jesus that we look, the founder and perfecter of our faith, He's blazed the trail before us, enabling us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's from there that Jesus, our King, governs the course and events of the world and our lives, that nothing happens or will happen that is outside of his ruling power. I trust that's immensely comforting truth to you in the present. And as you look to an unknown future, and even as we find ourselves just eight days into 2023, you know, we read and hear about uh, the persecution of the church, wars around the world, economic and political upheaval in our own nation or in other countries, and, and all manner of headline-grabbing items that might cause us to have a stomach ulcer. 
Not only that, but there are also the matters and stresses, challenges and difficulties present in our own lives or the lives of loved ones, friends, and others. But faith looks up to the cross and then higher still to the throne of grace and beholds with joy a king who has conquered sin and death and in whom there is life now and forever. And it's that same king who says to you each and every Sunday, listen to me, your sins are forgiven. Come to my table and behold, see these signs of bread and wine, take them and partake of them and believe that my word, my promises, what I have done, it's all true. And in response, go forth in obedience and trust to what he has made known to you, even the revelation of himself. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word and for the glorious way in which you tell us the story of the gospel, of what Christ has done again and again throughout the pages of your word. Impress it evermore upon our hearts and lives that we might bear fruit to your honor and glory, that we might be all the more, all the more assured in what you have promised and in the word you've given to us. And may we pursue after the life of obedience all the more faithfully and fully. Indeed, grant us your strength. Thank you for your word that has come to us, what we have heard with our ears. And now we thank you for the invitation to your table where we may continue to taste and see your goodness to us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.